Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 17th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Citizens' Assembly on Drugs met over the weekend. The 100 members of the group heard from a range of speakers who outlined why drugs are being used here and internationally. Paul Reed, the former HSE chief executive, is chairing these meetings, which will take place over the next six months. At that stage, recommendations will go to government on how to proceed with the control of what now are illegal substances, but there is much to consider. Some messages about why people may take drugs, uh, what are, and then we had some discussion with the panellists around the multiple adversities that some people may uh, face uh, that makes the taking of drugs more extreme uh, and more impactful. Um, there was also some good discussion throughout the day on language from a range of perspectives. One, in terms of the stigmatisation uh, that can emerge for individuals and communities, particularly related to language. And secondly, the issue of language related to a lot of the terminology that's used around legislation, regulation, decriminalisation, reducing harm. The one thing that we do know about drugs is that they're everywhere. Drugs are sold and consumed in every town and village in this country. Uh, the pervasiveness of drugs and people who will take drugs across ages and across all communities but equally uh, while it's pervasive the harm is particularly concentrated and particularly concentrated and harmful and hurtful uh, in areas of higher social deprivation for many reasons not just related to drugs uh, but they see they suffer more and I think that's one thing that came true. So despite decades of war against drugs, they continue to be used uh, and it's a market that by all accounts is growing. Our main headline message is that drug supply and use have both begun to bounce back following disruptions during COVID-19 and indicators of supply and use are already starting to return to pre-pandemic levels. Looking at stimulants like uh, cocaine, crack cocaine, amphetamine and methamphetamine, 
through wastewater analysis, we can see that there were increases in some cities of the residues detected for these drugs between 2020 and 2021. Now, that's uh, Dr. Owen Quigley of uh, the European Monitoring Commission. He was uh, addressing the Citizens' Assembly on drugs yesterday, which is chaired by former HSE boss Paul Reid, who we heard from earlier. Let's speak now, though, to Gino Kenny, people before Profit TD for Dublin Midwest. And a, a very good morning to you, Gino, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us all in the programme. This conversation is now very much underway and it's a conversation you've been calling on us as a, a nation to have for a very long time. Yeah, um, it's fascinating, Michael. Um, kind of to hear, kind of, I suppose, it being debated and looking at the whole spectrum of quite a complex uh, issue such as drug use. And obviously the Citizens' Assembly is very, very welcome that well, we've been talking about this for a considerable amount of time in relation to, you know, what the state does in relation to, you know, uh, an issue such as drug use. So it is, it's important to hear from the broad spectrum of those that are on the front line of uh, drug use, whether that's people in communities that are affected uh, from drug use to the police and, you know, those that are, as I said, on the front line. So it's a fascinating kind of uh, debate and uh, it will run over the next you know, seven or eight months. And then, obviously, at the end of that process, it will give its recommendations to the legislators, such as us, uh, the government in this case. And hopefully, hopefully, um, in their recommendations, it, you know, it calls for legislative change in relation to the present laws around drug use. Because I, without being presumptuous, I think if it doesn't, Michael, I don't really see the point of it. And obviously I'm quite biased in some ways because I'd like to see legislative change, whether that's uh, forms of decriminalisation or regulation. But it's important to have these debates and there will be people that will be kind of, would be opposed to any sort of change in relation to drug use in Ireland. But I think, I, I think public opinion is ahead of politicians on this issue and that's kind of been borne out by a number of polls in recent mm. times. But I think we are looking at kind of looking at changing the status quo uh, over the next probably 18 months. Nice. Um, and that will be probably borne out by international experience. Not perfect by any means. Like there's, you know, there's a terrible dark side to kind of drug use. But there's also a side that people use drugs for all sorts of reasons. And people will use drugs and won't abuse them. Actually, the majority of people that will use drugs won't abuse them. Will n- won't have problematic use, problematic but, use with them, but there are people that will. Right? And, mm, uh, and are we creating problems if that is the case? Are we intentionally creating problems if we know that people will abuse them? Well, okay. As I said, most people that will use any sort of substance will won't have probl- a problematic use with them, but there are people that will have dependency issues, and um, whether they're legal or not. Um, so I think. You know, I've always said that it's better if something's regulated rather than um, what we have at the, at the moment where basically everything is, you know, it's illegal and it's illegal to have. And obviously through, through all that, people are t- sent through the criminal justice system and so forth and, mm. you know, crim- people being criminalised. So I just don't think that policy works anymore and we need to do have a different discussion about how we treat people that, you know, choose to use drugs. Um, and there's obviously there's a lot of social determinants in relation to this, you know, disadvantage, um, you know, 
trauma in people's lives. It's a huge issue. You know, people have serious trauma in their very early kind of childhood mm. or teenage years. Some people may turn to kind of, you know, substances, whether it's alcohol or other drugs or whatever. And that can be kind of a huge determinant sometimes in people. So I think it's a really important discussion that we're having. Um, and I look forward to, you know, the, the next uh, number of meetings over the next course of the next few months. I think it's a, just an important discussion to have. Okay. And it's, a non, it's at least it's an honest an open discussion and that's very very important. I want to talk to you about some of the problems or some of the concerns that a, a group of 21 doctors articulated in a letter to the Irish Times uh, last week uh, before we do that maybe we can hear back uh, from Dr Owen Quigley uh, of uh, the European Monitoring Commission uh, talking about some of uh, the problems associated with using drugs. Europe's drug problems have become more complex and we summarise this with the phrase everywhere, everything, everyone what we mean by that is that drug problems are today appearing almost everywhere. We can see them manifest in and exacerbating issues such as homelessness, youth criminality, the management of psychiatric disorders, but also violence and intimidation in communities related to the operation of drug markets or changes in the flow of drugs internationally in developments in Afghanistan or the war in Ukraine. Okay, that's uh, Dr Quigley once again. The 21 doctors who wrote uh, to the Irish Times last week uh, were talking about uh, cannabis specifically, uh, which is often perceived as harmless. Uh, Just a a bit of the wacky backy, a bit of dope, everybody smokes weed and so on, but they're saying it's a bigger issue than that. Uh, it is one of uh, the biggest problems uh, that people under 25 years of age are experiencing with addiction at the moment. They say there's 22,000 people with cannabis dependency in this country, a thousand admissions uh, with cannabis-related diagnoses, uh, and a bigger issue, they say, Junior Kenny, for young people than alcohol is. Yeah, I mean, I obviously read uh, the doctor's letter in the Irish Times, and obviously there's huge concerns in relation to those that, you know, have dependency issues around cannabis. Um, but that's in the paradigm of prohibition, I go. No, cannabis is illegal to have, to supply, and so forth. Um, I would argue that, you know, to really tackle the issue um, and get control of it, you need regulation rather than what we have at the moment. There's no regulation. And once you don't have regulation, somebody will fill that vacuum in. Well, you'll only have regulation if you legalise it, won't you? Decriminalising it for personal use will do nothing to regulate what people are using. No, no, no. no, no, Let's be honest about that. Decriminalisation is probably a stepping stone, uh, but decriminalisation decriminalises the person for using a certain amount of, you know, small possessions of drugs, but doesn't get rid of the black market. Mm. So you don't want to have that paralysis going on forever. I, I think you need to look at a regulated system, particularly around cannabis. The other drugs are much, much more complicated, mm. probably for another debate. Uh, but you need a regulated system where people, if they choose to use cannabis, will know exactly what they're consuming. Um, and that's not to say that people will still have dependency issues around cannabis, dependency issues, even if it's legal. Mm. But that it's a better system if it's regulated. And if you looked at other court, other, court, other countries where it has been regulated, not perfect by any means, um, Michael, but it's a better system. It's a better system where if people want to use cannabis, and there will be an increase of cannabis use when it becomes legal. Like anything, when you legalise something, of course there's an increase. 
you know, where people will avail of it. But then it plateaus, and all the evidence shows that this has happened through where country states, particularly in the states in the states of legalised cannabis and regulated. But that's a better system rather than what we have at the moment, where we have no zero control over it. No, even though it's a controlled drug, the people that really control it is the black market. Mm. We need to have a discussion to say, look, at what system is better for society, you know, that, you know, how people can have dependencies around cannabis. Majority of people never have dependencies used, Michael, mm. never using, using cannabis, don't have any problems at all. And that's not to say that it's harmless. I've ne- we've never said that those that have advocated for the end of public have never said cannabis is, is harmless. Never. Okay. I've never said it. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a drug, it's, you know, and it can be kind of, people can get dependent on it. Uh, and if you, you know, if, uh, you know, if people use it on a kind of constant basis, of course, you know, it can't be good for your health. Uh, yeah. But the majority of people won't have any dependency issues when, you know, with, you know, if, if it's illegal at the moment. But Parking dependency for a, a moment, um, it, it's not just uh, the fact that you might get addicted to it if you decide to use drugs, whatever drugs you decide to use. It, it's a question of what is it that you're taking? I mean, we've heard stories of drug dealers bulking out their deals with rat poison or flour or whatever the case may be. But it's not just yeah. the harder drugs that are contaminated. And this was highlighted over the weekend. We'll hear once again from Dr. Quigley, if you bear with me, Gino. And concern yeah. continues about adulteration of cannabis with synthetic cannabinoids. And in 2021, uh, there was an increase in detections of ADB butanaka in 11 member states reporting it at least since July 2020. The concern here is the people may be purchasing what they perceive to be illicit natural cannabis products, but they're in fact adulterated with synthetic cannabinoids. This creates different kinds of risks because synthetic cannabinoids promote more intense intoxication, mental, physical and behavioural effects than natural cannabinoids and some fatal and non-fatal poisonings have been associated with these. Right, that's uh, scary, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's a good point by that gentleman. Mm. Um, and I said, I said many times, Michael, in this show, is that once you don't have regulation, then you will have uh, un- unregulated kind of products uh, where what people are using. Mm. And if people don't know what they're using, then it can store up huge kind of, I suppose, issues around synthetic cannabis and so forth. So in a regulated system, if people choose to use cannabis, they'll know exactly what they're using. Mm. And it would be regulated, controlled by the state. Um, and that's, as I said, that has a, a system that in 20, over 20 states in the United States, some countries around the world now have, have, are, you know, are moving towards, even Germany. Now, it's not full regulation they're looking at this year, but they're looking at kind of a not-for-profit system via social clubs mm. and that, you know, somebody could have a certain amount of cannabis on the possession. So it's a kind of de facto regulation. Uh, not perfect by any means, but, they're, you know, yeah. it's, better than, it's better than what is because at the moment it just simply doesn't work. I wonder how many people who uh, smoke cannabis uh, would be aware that some people have died because of what they've been consuming, because of what it's been laced with. Yeah, I've never heard that one, I have to say, and that's that's new to me. I'm sure it has happened, uh, where kind of, you know, people have consumed cannabis and maybe, obviously it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Mm. But I think it, over this, you know, over the next four or five, six, seven months, Michael, it's important that, you know, the Sydney Assembly doesn't just focus on cannabis. Cannabis is probably the 
I suppose, probably the most used illicit drug in, under the control drugs. Mm. Um, so it's important that we look at the whole broad spectrum of drug use. And I know I, I've talked about cannabis and it's probably, it's, there's other states uh, and other countries where it has been regulated. There's no country in this world that has regulated other forms of drugs to a certain extent. Um, that's a different debate. Um, and hopefully that kind of debate happens. Mm. Uh, because I think uh, I think it's it's a worthy debate. It can be a difficult debate at the best of time, you know. Uh, but I think it's a debate worth having. And I think you know the the kind of the prevailing winds, particularly around drug use and around kind of how we kind of look at this issue. I think it definitely has turned. Mm. And um, hopefully, over the next couple of years. And we'll see something very different from what we have at the moment. Yeah. I think the country's ready for that debate, and I think it's ready for a form of change. Well, as we know, the Citizens' Assembly isn't just a, a talk shop. It'll make recommendations uh, to government, and come the autumn, uh, the government will be looking very closely at this, following mm. on from the Citizens' Assembly. Uh, so it's a, a discussion that is underway, uh, but uh, the talking is going to end with some decisions uh, going into mm. next year, quite possibly. Gino, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much Thanks, Michael. for joining. Much appreciated, as always. Gino Kenny is a People Before Profit TD for Dublin Midwest. Um, and you're welcome to share your thoughts with us on this. Should drugs be legalised? Should drugs be decriminalised? Should some drugs be legalised and others not or decriminalised and others not as the case may be? Or should we stick with uh, the status quo and uh, come down harder on the drug dealers and uh, detect people who are using drugs and uh, continue with uh, the policy of uh, just outlawing drugs usage and the sale of drugs altogether, which of course has been the policy. Uh, you're welcome to share your thoughts with us. Uh, as I say our telephone number is 0419832000 that's 0419832000 text or WhatsApp us if you've got a, an opinion on this we'd love you to share it with us on 0861800658 that's 0861800658 if you want to text or WhatsApp and you can email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the Clintons will be there. That's Hillary and Bill. Hillary Clinton telling politicians in the North to get back into business. They'll be joined by Bertie Ahern and Tony Blair. George Mitchell uh, will uh, address uh, a three-day meeting at Queen's University in Belfast when it opens today to commemorate uh, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, Michal Martin, the Thonish, will be there. Former President Mary Robinson, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and uh, the European Brexit negotiator Maris Sefcovic will also be in attendance uh, and there will be a, a lot of focus, I'm sure, on the political vacuum uh, that is in existence uh, today uh, with uh, the political institutions remaining in limbo because of uh, the collapse last February. Let's speak to Damien McGinty, spokesperson with Border Communities Against Brexit. A very good morning to you, Damien, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. I'm sure, like many of uh, the very uh, well-known names uh, who led up to that historic agreement in 1998, you'll be calling on politicians in Stormont uh, to take up their seats and get back to business. Get back to work. Um, Absolutely. The number one issue for people who who live their normal lives who um, I was, my, my dad's elderly and I actually was in Daisy Hill Hospital with him yesterday and 
when you see, you know, on a relatively calm day in April, A&E bursting, overflowing, staff under huge stress. Um, schools are back today after the Easter break. And we believe in the next week or 10 days, we're going to see a 10% cut to the education budget in the north. Um, this is the stuff that really matters. It's wonderful to see VIPs in Belfast today. We had a fantastic presidential visit in Biden last week. Another pre- um, 42nd president, Bill Clinton's in, in Belfast for, for this anniversary. But when these guys go home, we need our politicians to get back to work mm. because it's, it's, it's that delivery of services to people. That, um, that that is critical and what impacts on people's lives. Do you believe that they will get back to work after the local elections next month? Yes, I hope that they will. Um, I think the DUP are in a, are in a schism. Um, you know, there and there is probably uh, two camps within that party. Um, probably more led by the Westminster side, who are happy enough shouting in Westminster and kind of leading the party from there. Um, but there has to be significant pressure on their MLAs in their own constituencies. You know, people, regardless of what community you're from, still face the same issues in their life, like I have just spoken about, particularly around health and education, and they will be coming under pressure to be able to resolve issues. Mm. And the only way you can resolve them is to get back into office, get your ministers in place, get the committees up and running, and if there are, and there will be tough decisions having to be made around budgets, that's what, we, that's what these people are paid for. They're paid to make tough decisions. And if there are, is cuts to be made, for example, the North is, I believe, far too many quangos. Um, if there are savings to be made and that money put into frontline services, this is a decision our politicians need, need to make and make it soon. Mm, uh, perhaps so, but I, I think it's expected that the DUP will do better than they would have uh, because of uh, this position that they've taken, which has led to, to the stalemate. Uh, so it's playing well to their constituency. Yeah, of course it is. You know, uh, the DUP don't want to give up too many votes to the ultra-right-wing Jim Allister in the TUV. Um, but they also will be mindful, Michael, that if they, they can't hang too tough or they would be afraid that another section of their vote would act either stay at home or, or move to the Alliance Party. And, you know, we have to also understand that across political unionism, there's almost a psychological um, debate going on about the, they have lost their majority. The state was set up 100 years ago, and they're no, they're no longer the majority in um, instalment. They, um, the Catholics now on the last census result form a bigger percentage of the population than Protestants Um, they they effectively lost the Brexit debate it was interesting I watched very close the debates in the House of Commons and less to extend in the House of Lords but 95% of the people who cast votes in those two uh, institutions voted for the Windsor framework Mm. so the DUP are now have isolated themselves and have uh, with their friends in Westminster so it's Hobson's choice. You know, are they going to continue to be isolated and um, deliver um, shocking services to, to, to the population in the north? Or are they going to try and make Northern Ireland work? Because mm. ultimately, I think everybody recognises in the next five, eight years, we could be looking at a border poll and people will be making a decision effectively what union they want to belong to. Um, and, and that. I would say it's a big factor in the thinking of, of political unionism also. Mm. 
Mm. Well, you make valid points, but the DUP may not uh, agree with them and really it's in their gift uh, to continue to boycott uh, the Assembly and uh, not form an executive, uh, if that's what they wish. Uh, And therein lies the problem, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, even if the institutions are restored after the local elections, you're always going to have this problem where one party or another can collapse them again very quickly. Yes, but it's also in the gift of the two governments to change the Good Friday Agreement. This agreement's not written in stone. And there is a very live debate now um, if if the DUP decide not to go back in to, to actually change the structure of how the, the, the cabinet, the executive, is formed. And it would be it would be formed by those who are willing to partake. So if if the DUP or any other party choose to exclude themselves from cabinet government, they can sit in the back benches. Mm. Um, and I think that you see that debate really take off um, in the summer if the DUP decide to stay out. Mm. Uh, and. Uh- Where does the alliance come into that change? Uh, Because there has to be equal representation under power sharing of uh, nationalists and unionists. Well, you see, that that, that is a significant change. Um, And it's a reality. You know, alliance were not an electoral force 25 years ago that, that they are now. I think they represent 16 or 70 percent of the of, 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 of the population. Um, but, you know, there's petitions of concerns. There's a whole lot of issues here mm. would need to be thrashed out. But people can't be held to ransom. So you could have a Sinn Féin alliance government or just an alliance government, perhaps, or a Sinn Féin government or, or whatever. Uh, and, yeah, or SDNP and you, you, or also Unionist Party. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, mm. there's potential there for a, a, a mix. Of course there is. Mm. And unions then forced to go into opposition or uh, boycott uh, the Assembly. Well, it's self-imposed. Mm. You know, uh, you know. Look at Dáil Éireann. You know, uh, the uh, governments are formed by a coalition of the willing. This happens all over the world. I'm not saying it's absolutely going to happen, but that debate is very live, and um, that will also impact in the summer. Um, I think greatly on the political scene if the DUP choose to stay out. Mm. And how would that go down uh, with uh, voters? Uh, I mean, if uh, the DUP uh, decided not to participate in power sharing, then there's no representative for a huge section of the community, isn't there? Well, the DUP represent, you know, electorally, I think about 22% of the population. You know, um, in lots of jurisdictions, there's 22% of uh, of political parties who are not in the government. Uh, we could argue that's the case in the South at the moment, you know. Um, so if people are willingly exclude themselves from government, um, you know, and, and form uh, uh, an, an opposition, surely um, that, that can't be argued as very unreasonable. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. In Northern Ireland, though, it could be seen uh, in, in, in a way different than elsewhere that the government is uh, the enemy of um, one cohort of people. Well, uh, certainly people would paint it like that. But, you know, we're 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement. The society has moved on. It has been completely transformed. Um, and, you know, the growth of the Alliance Party is, is, is a very good example of that. Mm. Um, so I think these decisions are are staring people in the face. Um, so we we, we will see, um, I think, by the summer, whether or not 
that is going to be explored. But I think an impetus will come from what's going on today with, with those VIPs in Belfast, mm. with the Biden visit last week. Um, there is a huge opportunity for investment, not just in the north, but, you know, throughout the island. And we saw that after the Good Friday Agreement. And we particularly saw that, you know, in, even in border communities, so the transformation there was with, with demilitarization, and that took until about 2006 for that to happen. But, you know, the, the huge ad- advent of, of cross-border trade, cross-border shopping, the development of the all-island economy. Yep. Um, and that has been very positive, not just for the North, but, yeah. but for everyone that lives on this island. Oh, and young adults walking around now with very important jobs and so on uh, who don't remember the troubles <laughs> because it's so long yeah, ago, which is one of the fantastic yes. things about it yeah, indeed. Yeah. All right, Damien, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us though today. That's uh, Damien McGinty, who is a spokesperson for Border Communities Against Brexit. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing in the bulletins uh, this morning, uh, the Minister for Justice, Simon Harris, is launching Find Your Way After Sexual Violence. It's a, a new guide for victims and survivors of sexual violence, uh, which is being published by the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Let's speak to its CEO, Nolan Blackwell, who's on the line. And a, a very good morning to you, Nolan, and thank you indeed for joining us uh, on the programme. Uh, you've put this guide together after speaking uh, to a number of people uh, who have uh, been the victim of sexual violence. Yeah, so there, so so one of the things that uh, assuredly we find again and again is that if somebody has gone through the experience of being raped or sexually abused and they need help in some ways, it can be an extremely confusing, anxious time where you don't quite know where to go for help um, in the in the olden days before the internet like there were some guides out there um, and they're still around but finding one of them or knowing even where to look or having to ask somebody for assistance just seems to it just adds another burden onto somebody who's already you know anxious and troubled as a result of the abuse including the perhaps the rape mm. so in those circumstances we so we we regularly go with people to court. Uh, we help people who are going to guard the stations. We go with people to the sexual assault treatment unit in Dublin. Other rape crisis centres do the same in their own areas as well. Um, and, and so we, we, we know the system. We know how it operates. And we also know somehow how people feel. And people tell us as well how they feel about these things. So what we've done is we've tried to gather as much information as we could in one place, in one internet guide where people can find their own way through it, where they can go back to it, find little pieces. We hope it's accessible. We hope it's in, you know, in easy language and with easy sort of animations and things like that. But it is also, we've checked it out with those who have been victims and survivors of sexual violence. And they've, they've helped us to shape it. Uh, and one of the things that I think is really, in, in some ways, it's kind of an added bonus. Mm. It's not the information, but it's having the knowledge that other people have been through this. Other people have felt this way. It's okay to feel the way you feel, to behave the way you behave, to, to not know the things you don't know, you know. So that we put, hopefully put into the guide as well, so that people can feel at ease and they won't feel alone and they will get the, they will get the information and the help that they need. So profound is the impact on people, I take it. Exactly. 
Exactly. But, you know, think of any, any of us who is anxious about anything. It's hard to retain information when you're told it even. And if you're going into something that you hoped never to have to do and, and you're going into it a, a total novice in the area to just have something that is easily read, and, and that you can hear people talking you know, their way through it at some stages as well. Hopefully that will give people the courage and the strength that they need at the time that they need it. Mm, okay, and I, I take it that uh, they are very difficult circumstances that people find themselves in, uh, particularly if you have to go to a guard station and contemplate taking court action, uh, as I often think uh, I don't like the idea of being in court for a speeding ticket, let alone something yeah. Like this, and uh, taking a case against somebody, or these medical appointments uh, that people will go to after a rape or assault, uh, and again, you must feel kind of compromised having to do something like that. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that an awful lot of people don't know, for instance, is that if you go to a sexual assault treatment unit after a rape, you will get medical help. You know, they will they will check out that uh, they'll, they'll check out that you're okay and that whatever medical help you need, you will get as well. It's not only uh, it's not only for collection of forensic evidence. So those are the kind of things that often. Well, of course, why would you know it? Like if you're if you're not if you haven't been in that situation before, you would have no reason to know these things. Mm. So it is getting the right information to people at the time that they need it and being able to find it in their own way. People will need access to uh, the internet in order to get at this information, but that's really all they need. Everything after that is free. Hopefully it's well explained. Um, it's new now. We're, we're, we'll build it further over time. We'll be really interested to know what people think about it as, as they use it. But we think it is as, as best we can. It is informed by victims and survivors. It's informed by our own expertise and, and experience in this area. And we think it will be a big help to people. And you know what? Not just people who themselves have experienced it, but a friend or a family member who might be trying to help out, or even just someone who wants to understand the system. It's available for anybody. I think Minister Harrison made the point when he was agreeing to do this. He made the point that this is something that really could be read by a lot of people who need to know what the, what's involved in the system as well. Um, and, uh, and hopefully that will be there as well. And hopefully it will be um, understandable. That's what that's what it's aiming for. Yeah, and, and we put a, a, a good bit of time and thought into it and hopefully good. we get that. Oh, I'm sure you did, Nolene. Uh, and even if you've never been affected by sexual abuse, uh, it may help give you the tools to support others who you encounter, may encounter. Exactly, uh, exactly. Who, who have, yeah. uh, and we often speak to you about your helpline uh, where you offer a lot of emotional support and psychological support uh, and that line is open 24 hours a day. It's an invaluable service, uh, 1-800-77-8888. But I, I take it uh, people also need support uh, psychologically and emotionally in getting through some of uh, these practical steps that you're giving a guide on. Yes. 
Yes, that's right. And and that's why this isn't a substitute for the service that we offer and other rape crisis services offer as well. So we go to court with people if they want us to. Um, we'll help people who are going to a guard the station uh, to try and explain what's going on. And, and we will be do we have, as you say, the helpline and an associated web chat. And now that can be interpreted into pretty well any language that's spoken in Ireland. So that's always there as well. Um, but very often, you know, somebody, it is really useful for us to have people who will go and sit with someone in court, not to give them legal advice because we don't do that piece, but to, to just be there with them, to know what's going on and to, yeah, to, to just be that moral support that people can need in very difficult situations. Because again, the point is, as you as we have discussed before, like the reality in relation to sexual crime and sexual offences is that very often they're carried out by somebody that the victim knows and trusts or trusted before the assault. So it's you know, it's even harder than if the person was a stranger. So we'll be there the whole time. We'll continue that support. Mm. This is additional. This is where you can't remember what you were told earlier in the day, or you can't remember what's going to happen at the sentencing uh, in, in a case or something like that. And you just need to go back and it yourself. The people will still be here. The rape crisis centres will still be there. This is just that additional piece, if kind of at half past nine, one night you go, I'd just love to know that piece of information. Or I want has this ever happened to somebody else? And you can look and you will see that, yes, something like this has happened to somebody else. Your case is always unique, but that there is help out there and that there is information. And hopefully that makes it easier for people because like, we like to think we're helpful, but mm. we also like to think that those who are victims of sexual offences, they're victims of crime, and that they are able to access their rights to uh, to go to a sexual assault treatment unit, to have their case investigated and to have it taken to court if the DPP decides that. So these are the kind of ways in which, you know, people have rights. Yeah. And we hope that this is advancing their rights as well as just being a useful uh, piece of information for a lot of people. All right. Well, the guide will be available on uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre's website uh, from this afternoon, uh, I take it. Uh, that's exactly. drcc.ie. Or if people just want to speak uh, to your... Uh, experts, uh, if they have uh, something that they want to talk uh, about, one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight is the twenty four hour national helpline. One eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. Nolene, thank you very much indeed, as thank always, you, for joining us this morning. That's uh, Nolene Blackwell, who's uh, the chief executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Just some comments coming to us. Uh, Deirdre and Navin says, uh, Gino Kenny is talking a load of rubbish. I know people who did not come from a, a deprived background, just ordinary decent families who got hooked on cannabis before they went on to heroin and went through hell. Does he want to legalise heroin as well? Also, cannabis causes paranoia. Does he want that to be legal for 12 and 13 year olds, says Deirdre Navin. Uh, John in RD with a different uh, perspective on that, saying that he was living in America for a while where he gave up drinking and took up the pot, as he says. Uh, never had a, a drink at all while he was over there. Never had a hangover either and uh, felt slightly better uh, about it all. Ridiculous to come back to a country then uh, where my favourite tipple, if you like, is now illegal. 
Jacob. Thank you, John, for that. Patsy in Carrick says the dogs in the street knew that the DUP would never, ever play second fiddle to Sinn Féin. And Paddy Duffy says the DUP are by their own hand making themselves irrelevant to the future of the North as each day passes. Uh, They've fed their supporters a diet of fear and hate from their inception in the early 70s and they don't have anything else to offer. They never will, says Paddy Duffy. Thank you indeed if you've been in touch. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp us today on 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, there's quite a, a worrying story on the front page of the Irish Daily Mail today, although it may not come as a, a great surprise to many people. The paper reports that Irish identities are being stolen and sold online for €25. Euro. Uh, major data breaches have resulted, the Daily Mail says, in a significant number of Irish customers' bank login details, passwords, PPS numbers and addresses being packaged together and then all of that information being sold on the dark web for €25. Euro. Uh, let's uh, speak now to Frank Dillon, who's Head of Communications and Fundraising with the charity Alone. Good morning to you, Frank, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. You were uh, making uh, the point last week that we all have to be vigilant, uh, but you were highlighting how older people really should be vigilant of financial abuse. Uh, and uh, I suppose uh, this story this morning in the Irish Daily Mail plays very much in, in, into the fact that we're all at risk. Good your listeners, and, and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, look, I, financial risk, as, as financial products become more and more convenient to those who are younger, they sometimes they can't be that they're not that convenient for older people who don't wouldn't use the internet as much some older people like 75 plus only 50% of people use the internet so a lot of these facilities are, are great and easy to use and improve functionality but we do, we do caution that you know you, you don't push these solutions and, and push people onto the internet when it could be, if they're not comfortable with it, it could end up, like the Daily Mail says, in all sorts of fraud situations. Yeah, uh, I think uh, some of uh, the scams uh, that we've seen recently ha- have really uh, been impressive, uh, very sophisticated uh, and very easy for anybody to fall victim to them. Absolutely. And, and some of the, you know, they, they start with a simple text, you know, this is your bank, your your account has been compromised, push this, follow this link. And then it drags you down into entering your details. And it just is really, people have to be so cautious. Um, and, and that's the, the sort of the main watch out. If anybody is missing money, they should call the guards. And if they're, if they're looking for advice, they should call ourselves or Sage. Mm. Yeah, well, maybe that's the thing, uh, because you can be drawn in very quickly, can't you? Especially if you're told that somebody uh, who doesn't appear to be you has had access to your account. And that, that's the trick to all this, you know. It's like we're trying, the text appears that, like it's helpful, you know. Oh, we, we notice something strange on your account. Follow this link or, contact or call this number. And next thing, you're given over details. And the truth is, banks will never ask anyone to share their details. They'll never ask anyone. To, to to hand over personal information or PIN codes or anything like that. Mm. What we do advise people is to just keep a regular eye on your bank balance. You know, if you notice anything unusual, um, notice it early. You know, and and keep a regular. People tend to know. We're not we're not awash with money at the moment, and, and people tend to know fairly much of the closest 
amount of money, how, how they should, what their bank account should have. And I think it's just about being careful and being conscious of that. Mm, and if you're not sure, um, err with caution and maybe ask somebody for advice, as you say. I think that's it. You know, if people offer, and unfortunately with a, with a lot of financial abuse, it, it happens to older people with people they know. It's not always the, the stranger on, on, on the other end of the phone or, or a text message. And sometimes if, if there's a, an unusual request, you know, follow it through. Why, why do you want me to set up a joint account? Why do you want me to just change the way things have been? You know, and it, 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 it pays to be curious in these cases. Mm, indeed. Uh, and as technology uh, dictates uh, how we live our lives now, as you say, uh, an awful lot of people uh, using their phones uh, for making payments. A lot of older people don't like that uh, and uh, like to have cash. But we are moving towards a cashless society, aren't we? We are moving towards a cashless society and that does have, that does have a lot of benefits. But at the same time, as you say, Older people who are used to collecting a certain amount of money or, or having a certain amount of money and paying for things in, in, in piecemeal, you know, we're, we're trying to slow down this, forcing people to go online and forcing people to do it. Now, the banks have been helpful and a lot of them have dedicated phone lines for people to get in touch with and, and to you can even register with, I know you can with um, energy companies, you can register as an older customer so you know you can get through on a phone line and actually talk to somebody mm. and sometimes that's all it takes and and make sure you're calling the right number not the number that's texted to you but the look it up or have have the number of your local branch and speak to somebody mm. is always a, the best advice drive you mad though i'm sure a lot of people oh. say <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and even making a phone call these days uh, very difficult, uh, you know, whether you want to press 2 or 52 by the time the message ends. Frank, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Frank Dillon, Thank Head you. of Communications and Fundraising with uh, the charity alone. Alice in touch with us, uh, saying, who buys these identities? Uh, well, according to the story in the Irish Daily Mail today, there's uh, people who go on the dark web to buy these uh, identities uh, and uh, they, in effect, get someone else's credit. Um, they talk about people using this card then for small amounts, maybe something like going to Tesco and putting food on the table. table. Uh, but uh, the Banking and Payments Federation of Ireland say that you might think this is victimless uh, and that the person whose money you're taking will get it back from the bank. But it's not always the case. And it's the available of availability of this data on the dark web uh, that is uh, really brazen, apparently. Uh, I'm not sure uh, that it's a good idea to highlight that, uh, but uh, it is in the sense uh, that you've been warned to watch out for it. Uh, hopefully it doesn't encourage more people to go looking for uh, that kind of thing. Um, John in Navin shocked me this morning. John, I really was very taken aback with your text this morning. I can't believe uh, somebody uh, is in touch with us about Enoch Powell. Uh, and looking back on the wisdom of Enoch Powell, as John would seem to see it, uh, it's not a, a text that I could possibly read out, John. I'm very shocked and disappointed that somebody would get in touch with uh, this program, remembering the virtues of Enoch Powell. Oh, I don't know. Um, but... Uh Maybe just don't uh, get back in touch with us about Enoch Powell, 
please. Uh, but if you do want to get in touch with us about something else, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, a review of uh, the regulation of uh, termination of Pregnancy Act has uh, been undertaken. It's complete. Uh, the review is uh, with uh, the Minister, uh, but hasn't been published yet. The Irish Times reported last week that uh, the researcher, Dr Deirdre Duffy, uh, who took a look at the laws uh, allowing for abortion uh, together with a team of researchers from Manchester, Metropolitan University uh, say that there are problems that need to be addressed because the whole abortion system could collapse as things stand. Let's speak uh, to Patrick O'Bean, founder and leader of the Ain2 Party and a TD for Meath West. And a very good morning to you, Patrick O'Bean, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. I suppose uh, the first issue here is the publication of this report. Yeah, the, the context of this is um, last uh, two weeks ago, the minister indicated that the number of abortions has increased by 25% just in the last year. So the number of uh, unborn uh, babies that were aborted last year was 8,500, uh, which is an incredible figure. And just since the law has changed, uh, 28,500 uh, babies have been aborted. Now, that's the equivalent of the population of Kilkenny City. It's the equivalent of 76 primary schools of children whose lives um, are no longer with us because of the laws that the government have introduced. So it's an incredible situation that this is happening. Uh, it's heartbreaking uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, we have a review underway, but so far the information coming out of the review is only focusing on a narrow number of issues. So as you've mentioned yourself, that the review seems to be focusing on a conscientious objection. So we know that 90% of doctors currently in the state are refusing to carry out abortions. Um, And as a result, those who are advocating for more abortions uh, are of the view that uh, there isn't enough doctors carrying it out. Um, And it seems to be that they are advocating for the right of conscientious objection by the doctors to be reduced or to be curtailed in some way so that they will be forced maybe to uh, participate uh, in abortions. And I think that would be, you know, given the fact that we have so few doctors and we don't have enough doctors, uh, you know, writing it into contracts that they have to participate in abortions, I don't think it's going to do anything else uh, to help with the supply of doctors uh, that we need at the moment. The other issue that there seems to be focusing on this particular review is the issue of the three-day wait time. So uh, we, the, we know that when the uh, referendum happened, the government produced legislation And in that legislation, they included a three-day wait um, so that it would give mothers an opportunity to consider the the Mm. gravity of the decision that they're they're taking. Uh, Obviously, this is an irreversible decision that the baby can't be brought back to life uh, after an abortion. So this enormous decision should have some level of opportunity for people to consider uh, what's happening and even to look at maybe other positive options that are available to them. Um, and we know that um, it's actually helped save lives at uh, this three-day wait period because um, at least 4,000 women uh, who attended the first abortion uh, meeting with the doctor didn't attend the second one. Um, now, not all of those are because of uh, mothers deciding to proceed with their, their pregnancy, uh, but a large number are. And there's no doubt that there are thousands of children alive today, thanks in the main to that 
three-day waiting period uh, being in place. Now, you know, uh, pro-abortion campaigners are looking to get rid of that three-day waiting period, uh, which I think would be a, a big mistake, a big difficulty. And then the last issue, the issue that they're not focusing, unfortunately, on is that um, our PQs have shown that there are 133 adverse incidents happening uh, over the last number of years to mothers uh, in the abortion services. And an example of those, we know of three cases where a child was aborted um, under the fetal fatal abnormality section of the Abortion Act, but who was fully healthy. Um, so that's a very, very, very serious thing to happen. But mm. Very small amount, though. Uh, I mean, in the overall context, very few adverse Yeah, incidents. but for that child mm. and for that mother, it's a disaster. Like, in, I brought the case mm. of baby Christopher to uh, public attention there uh, a number of years ago, and this was for a child uh, in Hollis Street, uh, was identified to have a fatal fetal abnormality. And the child didn't, was fully healthy. And it turns out that the hospital wasn't even skilled or enough to be able to make that determination. And yet they proceeded to abort Christopher uh, at 15 weeks, uh, which is, you know, a disaster for the family and uh, obviously for Christopher too. And there's 133 other adverse incidents happening and no talk and no focus um, by the government in relation to that as of yet. And why was the hospital not skilled to identify if there was a fatal fetal abnormality? The hospital, I understand, didn't have the necessary genetic um, mm. skills. And, well, that's a problem um, with the system then, isn't it? Well, first of all, if you're going to make a, a diagnosis on a person, you need, to be, um, you need to make sure that your hospital has the necessary mm. skills to be able to do that. Well, that's improving the system and how, how services are, are delivered. Uh, but this is a health service, and uh, Dr. Deirdre Duffy has uh, described it as a postcode lottery. Well, first of all, health is about saving lives. Health isn't about ending lives. And, you know, abortion, obviously, every abortion ends with a life lost. Um, and that's, you know, very, very important to state. The well, it is a health say, service, though. No, it's like the health service. No, it is a health service. It depends on, on, on your definition of health service. If your health definition of health service includes ending the life of a human being, well, then you can call it a health service. But most people wouldn't have that definition. Um, and the other issue that people have a difficulty with the government in this review is... Well, the government a, a lot of people wouldn't uh, agree with what you've said. They would say that you've terminated a pregnancy and that you haven't ended the life of a human being because the fetus is not yet a, a human being. But, Michael, it is also a service that is provided uh, through health services in this country. So it is a health service. Well, just what species is the uh, fetus if it's not a human being? Well, you know that that is open to uh, people's opinion and interpretation, <laughs> and not one that I'm going to answer. I don't think I don't think that a baby can change species just uh, in the middle of uh, its life. Anyway, the well, law. If it's not a human made, being. It's not a human being, and that's the argument uh, that uh, a lot of people put forward. But it's not a scientific argument. Is, is the point I'm saying because a a child is a, a, a human being from the moment of conception. They can't change species. Uh, through its life. Mm. The point here is... But if well, there's a, the law, it, 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 if there's a service that is... A, a, if I can, Michael, just very, very quickly. The law actually states that abortion is the ending of a human life. So the law doesn't equivocate on this. The law that we are discussing, the review that's happening, mm. is a review of the law 
the state's very black and white. Yeah, okay, this well, is the ending of a life. Well, that's a decision that people will make. Uh, and if they choose to end a human life, uh, uh, as the law puts it, uh, well, then that's a decision that they make legally because the law allows for the termination of pregnancy. Sure. But if you can legally end a human life in Drogheda, why can't you do it in Donegal? point I just want to say here as well is that um, 85% of abortions are estimated to be because of the reason of socioeconomic difficulties that mothers have. So it's an incredible situation that you know, the vast majority of abortions are happening to healthy mothers and healthy babies. But the decision has been made because the mother feels that she doesn't have the economic confidence to be able to raise the child. And one of the difficulties we have in into is the government should have included and focus on what kind of supports can we give mothers so that they can actually make a positive decision in in relation to bringing up their own children so they can actually actually have a choice. And that's the key issue here. Some mothers feel that they don't have a choice because of the economic circumstances that they're in. And, you know, we're calling for the government to, you know, when when mothers ring up my options, the services provided here, um, that's, you know, the person at the end of the line will say, listen, you, you should know that there are uh, supports available in terms of um, financial supports, housing supports, um, you know, uh, home care uh, supports, etc., uh, for the raising of your child. And if you're going to make the d- decision, at least know that there are other positive options. Do you think people know those things? Well, the, the point of the matter is that the government is not providing that information anymore. And, you know, I think that's a mistake. No, I well, think the government should know that or the government should be providing that, those services. Well, I think uh, people do know all that, but uh, it sounds like you want somebody to remind them uh, with one objective, which is to get them to change their mind. But they've well, made up their mind. They've made a very hard, difficult decision. Should that not be respected? Should they not be respected as adults who have the capacity to make that decision? Well, first of all, last year, Michael, believe it or not, 27 mothers were pregnant and homeless. So... These are not mothers uh, who are in a situation where they're being supported by the government. Uh, We know that there are thousands of uh, mothers on an annual basis who are in dire poverty uh, and and difficult economic situations. These are not uh, mothers who are being given positive options by the government. And, you know, on a humanitarian level, on a compassionate level, at the very least, even if you don't want to mess with the law in relation to choice, at the very least, should we not be providing physically, not just the information, but we should be guaranteeing to mothers that you won't be homeless uh, if you're pregnant. You won't be without uh, a roof over your head uh, if you have a young child. I put in a motion just uh, four weeks ago in relation to the eviction ban, which looked for uh, the eviction ban to remain in place in the case where a mother was pregnant or had a child under the age of three. And Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens voted against a protection for renters, female renters, who are, who are, who are babies. And all, all I'm saying is that, you know, if we're going to be a humanitarian society, let's actually give mothers an option and a choice in relation to this. And that's not what's happening. And the problem is that the review that's under, been undertaken doesn't even consider any of that. And in actual fact, the, the people that were selected to participate in this review, the vast majority of them, had records of being, you know, uh, proponents of uh, abortion services. You know, this should have been an independent um, scientific uh, analysis of the services. And 
it hasn't been that. Even the selection of the chair was meant to be um, uh, in relation to a, 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 an independent selection. The government didn't go through an indep- independent selection process. They handpicked the, the chair for this. Um, this is a big issue. It's a difficult issue. It's not an, an easy issue for people. We do have to have compassion for people in relation to this. But let's give mothers an economic opportunity to be able to raise their kids. Okay, but are you not confusing issues? I mean, uh, one thing, solving the homeless uh, problem uh, like that, uh, it's one thing saying that certain people should be protected from uh, eviction, whether that's pregnant women or otherwise. Uh, But they're separate issues to the service that is being provided to women who want to terminate a pregnancy. But if the economic circumstances that a mother is in is driving them to a situation where... Well, fix the economic no circumstances, but... For sure, and that's, and, and that's the key that we're, we're focusing on, and, and even give uh, mothers an opportunity here. And this, the second issue here, and the issue of, of service, and you mentioned why is it available in, in Louth and not available in Donegal, the only way you can make it available um, throughout the 32 counties is to force doctors to go against their objectives in terms of health care, and what they've learned to do in, in terms of saving lives. And, you know, see, we live in a liberal democracy. They're, they're individuals. I mean, the health service is provided to, to the people of the country who have decided that abortion should be made available to women whenever they want it. No, actually, the people didn't decide that first. Well, uh, pe- people put uh, strict limits in relation to uh, aspects of, of this law. And secondly, abso- uh, absolutely, very, but, but, very interestingly, but, but, very but people, well, pe- people would have expected the outcome that the same limits uh, and restrictions would uh, apply, uh, and indeed the same access would uh, apply, whether you're in Louth or Donegal. But, but the key point here is, in a liberal democracy, uh, a doctor, a nurse, a medical professional should be able to get a job in the health service uh, without being forced to go against their conscientious objection. And most doctors, 90% of mm. doctors in this country... Well, should they be able to refuse people defense. a blood transfusion? Um, uh, first of all, a blood transfusion doesn't end up in, in, the, uh, in, in a, an aborted human being. It doesn't end up in, in, in a person that's deceased, a lost life. No, I know, but a Jehovah, witness, a Jehovah Witness believes a blood transfusion is wrong. Should a doctor be able to refuse somebody getting a blood transfusion? Well, first of all, the, the, these are two radically different things, and for people not to... Well, there's a conscientious objection that I'm talking about, so that would seem no, to be the same thing. It's not necessarily the same thing. and, and Michael, well, It's just obviously you don't, take, you don't take the view of a Jehovah Witness very seriously then. Well, first of all, there's no Jehovah's Witness that gets themselves into a medical situation where they're forced to give a blood transfusion. Well, there's Jehovah Witnesses who and would actually, rather die than be given a blood transfusion. First of all, that's a completely separate thing, because what you're asking a person to do is you're asking a person to deliver something that they are conscientiously object against. Mm. So doctors study, with, you know, over seven years, they, they go in, they do enormous amount of work in terms of trying to find ways to protect, to save lives. And what you're asking them to do is, that, you know, to go against all of their training, go against all of their, their uh, ethics and understanding of the value of human life. And you're saying that for you to operate in this country, you need to proceed and start to end lives. And 90% of doctors are simply saying that they won't do that. Um, and if you're going to build a law which forces them down that route, all I'm saying is you're going to find that fewer people are going to become doctors in Ireland. Last year, hundreds of doctors left this country uh, already. We have 
and a massive shortage of GPs. We have a massive shortage of consultants in, in, in hospitals. And now, you know, if I, get, if I find the logic of your argument is you're going to proceed down a, a, a path that's actually going to make it less attractive uh, for doctors to work in this country. Okay. Uh, you're worried about Tara Mines. Uh, just on a separate, separate subject, uh, the Independent reporting today uh, that they're finding it difficult to meet energy costs. Yeah, there's a, there's a big issue in Tara Mines at the moment. So uh, people would know that 660 people are employed directly uh, by Tara Mines at the moment. About 120 contractors are working there. And there's hundreds of jobs uh, in the county that are, are linked to Tara Mines uh, as well. It's the backbone of the economy, especially uh, in the Navan area. And what we know now is that Tara Mines, the second biggest cost it has is, is electricity. That electricity has shot through the roof um, price-wise uh, over the last number of months. And, um, you know, the government is providing uh, supports for certain businesses in terms of electricity, but is refusing to do it uh, in these terms. And there's a danger here that Tara Mines could make a, a commercial decision to close. Um, and the, the frustrating element about this is, you know, everybody is suffering from increased electricity prices. Mm. The government have been talking about putting pressure on the electricity companies to reduce the prices. The wholesale price of electricity collapsed months ago. There's no excuse for the radically high prices that still exist. And even companies like the ESB are, charging, are, are making massive profits, double the profits that they've ever made before. So we have a really serious situation meet where the government are sitting on their hands, and yet the biggest employer in the county could uh, shut down. Yeah, and, and the government raking it in, it has to be said uh, as well, because of the increased cost, the dividend uh, to government is far bigger. You're right. Like the, 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 the government made more money out of increased profits in the ESB and increased uh, taxes on fuel than they actually gave out in the electricity credits uh, over the last number of months. And so the government quids in in terms of, of this. Um, that there's a, a, a big danger. Like I, I would say to, to, to Minister Coveney, meet with Tara Mines this week. And I know Tara Mines have been looking to meet with Eamon Ryan, who is the minister in charge of mining in this country, but Eamon Ryan has refused to meet uh, with Tara Mines so far. And my instinct would be, you know, Eamon Ryan needs to get over his ide- ideological hump on this, and he needs to look at the bread and butter issues that are facing thousands of meat families. All right. And you believe there's a, a real possibility that Tara Mines may decide to close down, uh, that that would be a commercial decision? I know that the, the profit of Tara Mines in 2021 was 19 million euros. And I also know that the, 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 uh, the amount of money they're spending on electricity is in the millions. Uh, now, I, I, would, I, would, I would say that the government needs to have a very strict threshold in terms of helping commercial organisations. I don't think any commercial organisation should be allowed to, let's say, take advantage of a situation where it is needed. But if, commer- if, if Tara Mines meets the thresholds for support in terms of electricity... Uh, it would be madness for the government. Uh, it would be madness for the, the, the government TDs in this county to sit in their hands and, and watch the company close. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Founder and leader of AIN2, Pater Tobin, who's a TD for Meath West. 
Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Just a, a text uh, that has come to us uh, from somebody who says they're a good Samaritan uh, warning people in Clongill, Wilkinstown, Gibstown areas uh, to be aware that uh, there's a couple of people who are going around taking photographs uh, of houses and thank you for bringing that to our attention. Mary, thank you for your text. She says, so Michael, at what stage did you become human when you were in your mother's womb? Thanks uh, Mary for that and I understand why you're asking after the last conversation I'm sure somebody will be very quick to say I don't think he ever was human anyway Mick and Kells thank you for your text message as well he says Michael two pensioners uh, we're two pensioners that is it's a year since we went for a meal out we get full portion and a half portion uh, at the Carvery last year it was 23 euro for the two of us this year it's gone up to 32 euro the fuel allowance stopped on Friday or brought band went up €9 Euros per two-month bill. Everything seems uh, to have gone quiet in Ukraine. Oil prices are down. The hotels are still getting all their subsidies. Where is it all going to end? Thanks, Mick. Thanks very much indeed uh, for sharing that with us. I think a lot of people probably will identify uh, with uh, the difficulties that you're experiencing. Some WhatsApp messages uh, then. Uh, Margaret saying, Michael, just want to say Nolene Blackwell is a wonderful woman, always there for both men and women who've suffered sexual abuse now and in the past. Uh, on abortion, Ellen has been WhatsApping us and she says, Michael, why is it always men talking about abortion? Why can't they let women decide uh, about their own bodies? Most men run a mile when the girl gets pregnant and never made responsible. It's been the same way for years, says Ellen. As I say, thanks, Ellen, for getting in touch for your WhatsApp message. And in touch with us uh, about drugs as well and she says she doesn't see the harm in decriminalising cannabis and allowing its regulation she says wouldn't it be safer to have a controlled or a regulated substance rather than what we have now uh, and the stuff that they're putting into the drugs thank you indeed and uh, I think probably a lot of people were shocked to hear uh, earlier in the programme uh, that some of the poison that they're putting into cannabis ha- has led to deaths. Uh, and we might actually hear from uh, Dr. Owen Quigley uh, again now. This is uh, Dr. Quigley of the European Monitoring Commission. He was speaking at uh, the Citizens' Assembly on drugs uh, because they're looking at all drugs, not just cannabis. And this is what he had to say about cocaine usage. There are about 2.2% of uh, 15 to 34-year-olds, or 2.2 million uh, of that age group, reporting use uh, in the last year through surveys. Wastewater analysis shows us that about 32 out of 58 cities saw an increase uh, in cocaine residue uh, detections between 2020 and 2021. When we look at our index trend for the purity of cocaine, we see that it's risen 40% above the baseline year of 2010, while the price remains relatively stable. All of this together indicates high availability of cocaine on the European market. And with this, we're also seeing uh, increased signs of the spreading of the use of crack cocaine amongst uh, vulnerable groups. But this is also being driven by economic deprivation and the availability of small, cheap crack cocaine doses. A lot of cocaine by the sounds of it. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Owen Quigley. Uh, thanks to Mary who was in touch with us as well about uh, the guide for anybody who has been sexually assaulted. She says, great idea. It'll be wonderful for people 
uh, who've uh, undergone such uh, treatment. These cases can be a legal minefield uh, and survivors have uh, enough to be contending with uh, without having to face legal hurdles every step of the way. Kudos to whoever put the guide together. They provided an invaluable service. Thank you indeed, Mary. Let me just remind you, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, there's still time if you want to make a comment. 0419832000 is our phone number. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Another text comes to me from... A woman, it's not signed, but uh, I think uh, it goes without saying that it's a woman who sent this to us. Uh, she says, I just want to comment on Mr. Tobin's opinion on abortion because that's all it is. He'd never have been in the position of making that decision or having to make that decision as to whether uh, to terminate a pregnancy. 50 years ago, I was and would have had an abortion if it was possible. I tried doing it myself. I wasn't married and it was just a big scandal. I had my baby boy in the end, uh, but the doctor reckoned that he'd bullied his way into this world. I think Tobin is a good man, but some decisions are not his to make. He needs to see the bigger picture. Thank you indeed uh, for that, uh, whoever was uh, texting us uh, this morning. Now, we were talking about the cost of energy as well with Peter Tobin and uh, how that may impact on Tara Mines, who may decide to actually close and lose the 660 jobs, I think, that go with it. Uh, The cost of energy continues to be one of great concern. Uh, And uh, we listen back uh, to an exchange in in the Dáil before the recess about the cost of energy and why electricity is so expensive. The first person we're going to hear is uh, the Social Democrat TD Jennifer Whitmore. This morning I was at a briefing from St Vincent de Paul where they were talking about energy poverty um, and they expressed their concerns about what's going to happen to people uh, going forward in relation to the the high costs of of energy but they said that over the course of the last year they had 230,000 1,000 requests for help, 1,200 a day in December. I would imagine for those thousands of people to hear about the 847 million euro profit of ESB today, it must be absolutely gut-wrenching for them. And that increase that ESB have seen is directly as a result of the high wholesale prices in, uh, in generation. I understand the ESB have recommended an enhanced dividend to be paid to the state of 327 million. However, Taoiseach, that will still leave ESB, according to my calculations, with 231 million uh, in profits this year. And that, to me, is an obscene amount of profit for a company to be making in the midst of such an energy crisis. I would ask that you commit to make sure that all of the ESB profits come back to the state and that they are ring-fenced to support those in energy poverty. Right, and it really is incredible, isn't it? €847 million, but as we discussed earlier on, that means more money for the government and this dividend to the government of €327 million. ESB recorded a massive profit, €847 as you said, uh, so we'll be taking uh, a large part of that from them, both in terms of the tax and their profits, let's not forget that, and also the special dividend which we're taking this year, and we will ring-fence that money uh, to help families and businesses with the high cost of energy, uh, and people have have my commitment on that. Uh, I don't believe we should reduce the profits uh, of ESP to zero, and I don't think that for a particular reason, because it is the profits that build their balance sheet, and it's on the basis of that that they invest further and we do need to invest in renewable energy, 
in the grid uh, in upgrading our energy infrastructure. And if there's no profits, then there isn't a balance sheet to support that investment. And if you're committed to climate change, climate action, and energy security, uh, you'd understand the reasons for that. Okay, that's the Taoiseach explaining. Um, I'm not sure who can understand it, uh, but that's the explanation from the Taoiseach. When the profits increase, uh, the government gets more money. Maybe something for us all to keep it in mind the next time we open our electricity bill. Uh, but Taoiseach Leo Radker responding there in the Dáil a couple of weeks ago to Social Democrat Jennifer Whitmore. Michael Reed on LMFM. Farmers can expect uh, to meet inspectors from the Health and Safety Authority over the couple of weeks ahead. Beginning today, a two-week inspection campaign of farm vehicles gets underway. The focus will be on tractors and quad bikes. Uh, Let's speak now to the Health and Safety Authority. We're joined by Pat Griffin, who's a senior inspector with the HSA. And a very good morning to you, Pat, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, these are what you would consider to be high-risk activities uh, to be using a tractor or a quad bike. Yes, Michael, and, and thanks for covering this. Um, yeah, we're going out in a two-week campaign and we're trying to focus on all sorts of farm vehicles, but particularly tractors and quads. And the reason we're doing it really is to ask farmers to try to prepare a little bit better for silage harvesting season where tractors and loaders and trailers and uh, the rest will be used quite widely in, in the coming months. We're trying to ask them to you know, think about how they're going to manage the silage harvesting season, how to make it safe, make sure nobody gets injured or killed. And also we've got to focus on quad bike safety this year because new regulations are coming in later in the year. In November, I think maybe you can tell us about them in a, a moment. Uh, but yeah. talk uh, about the risks involved uh, because there have been 34 fatalities over the last five years. Yeah, 34 fatalities over the last five years involving uh, vehicles of some sort. 18 of them were tractors and four were quads. And if you go back 10 years, over, you know, there's 190 deaths in Ireland on farms and 86 of them were tractors and other vehicles. So the tractor, unfortunately, is the biggest killer on the farm. And we really have to try to start focusing on its proper use and making sure that it's well maintained. A lot of the problems that arise is poor handbrakes and and poor steering and also uh, operator error. So like if, if coming into the silage harvesting season, a lot of farmers use the same contractors but the contractors might have different drivers. So it's to make sure that the drivers are competent and well-trained and that the machinery that's been used is is well-maintained, that the brake systems have been checked and the hitching systems are are checked and right, and the lighting system, you know, that they're all connected. So there's a lot to think about. um, And, you know, there's a lot lot for the contractor to talk to the farmer about Mm. and vice versa to make sure that, we don't have uh, sad cases at the end of the day. Is there much more to think about, Pat, than there would be with maintaining a motor car? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, absolutely, okay. yeah. yeah. I mean, um, tractors are, you know, they're, they're the workhouse horse of the, of the farm. And I suppose, you know, if you think of the cab itself, you must make sure that the cab is clear. Like, a lot of farmers and uh, young fellows would be drinking bottles of fizzy drink or bottles of water, hopefully instead of fizzy drinks, but, you know, a bottle underneath uh, uh, the pedals of a tractor can cause a fatality. Mm. If the brakes are poor, you're, you know, you're, you're risking it. And I get concerned more so at the end of silage season when uh, 
people have been out for quite a period of time, then fatigue sets in. Mm. A lot of these um, drivers and operators of this this equipment work 12 hours, 14 Mm. hours a day uh, for weeks on end, and that can lead to excessive fatigue and and mistakes when they're out in the public road. I don't mean to be pernickety here, but I I don't think I'd like getting into my car with a a bottle underneath uh, the brake pedal or indeed uh, making sure uh, that uh, the brakes were working uh, if I hadn't uh, I don't think I'd fancy that um, uh, and you know every time I'm on the motorway I read signs saying tiredness kills uh, yeah. I, I mean they're fairly basic things aren't they in terms of uh, being conscious of safety yeah and we would hope that farmers and contractors uh, will look at all these things and we've actually produced a new code of practice risk assessment document there maybe three or four years ago, and part of that update on the code of practice was a whole section on harvesting and silage harvesting. And there's two pages of checklists that farmers and contractors should go through. And I think if they go through those uh, and review their code of practice, they'll actually come across a lot of questions, and if they answer them right and put things right, they can have their equipment safe, their workers will be safe, and the systems of work they have put in will be very safe and we can actually reduce these deaths and injuries mm. from from this type of work. And tractors so, should be safe, shouldn't they? I mean, there should, realistically speaking, uh, be no fatalities uh, to report on if uh, the vehicle is maintained properly and the person driving it is trained to do so. Absolutely. If you've got competent operators that work uh, responsibly and the tractor is in good condition, we should be able to have these uh, silage harvesting seasons without any fatalities and that's our aim. Mm. And to, but there's a quite a lot of work and a lot of things to think about there. I mean, you know, if you if you're sending tractors and trailers out into a field for harvesting, do you have two points of access to that farm where that field where the tractors will go in one gate and come out another so that they don't meet each other at the gate? Simple things like that, and then one-way systems in yards putting up a mirror in a, on a blind spot, making sure that children, elderly or other vulnerable people aren't in the farmyard. It's no place for anyone on foot when busy machinery is coming in and out. Mm. And making sure that the guy that's actually loading the clamper or, or loading the um, silage pit is fully in control of what's happening. Make sure that people turn and dump in the right spot and know what's going on. So there is a lot mm. to consider, mm. but it can be done safely if it's properly planned. And that's the whole reason we have inspectors yeah. out for the next two okay, weeks. Okay, very good. Uh, talk you, to farmers, you know. Uh, yeah, and to talk them through it and uh, to make sure that everybody uh, is safe. Uh, is prepared, yeah. Uh, you, you, you spoke about uh, young fellows drinking water or fizzy drinks or whatever. Are, are you concerned at all about the age of people driving tractors? Yes, um, I think that is under review by the Road Safety Authority, that um, the age at which young people can get a driving permit and actually operate these very, very large tractors and machines, I think it has to be looked at. And there has to be a training program, I think, for these young people before they can actually drive such big machines out on the road. But I say that is a role for the Road Safety Authority. And there is progress in that. I know that it has been looked at in Europe to get a European-wide uh, approach to this. Uh, that has slowed up a little bit, but it is something that we are concerned about. Mm. But uh, I would ask farmers and contractors to make sure that whatever driver or operator they have operating their machinery, 
make sure that they're competent, that they're uh, good operators and they're responsible. And they're very and, complicated machines, some of them now. I mean, it's like getting into the cockpit of a plane with some of uh, the equipment on board of these tractors. Uh, somebody texting us saying uh, that the HSA should spend a time, some time speaking to farmers about the use of mobile phones when they're driving tractors. It, it seems to be part of the job description now that you must use your phone when you're driving a tractor. Our caller says it's frightening. It certainly sounds frightening. It is frightening, and I would agree with that caller. Um, there's hands-free kits that you can get for your car. There's hands-free kits you can get for your, for your tractors. And again, I'd recommend contractors and, and uh, farmers to get hands-free kits in their tractors so that can, they communicate with each other. It's very important that they communicate, mm. but they shouldn't be using well, a mobile phone. All this other then, equipment, <laughs> why not get a hands-free system, yeah? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. And they're quite cheap, and they make the, the ability to communicate with your team much much uh, better, yeah. and um, you know, watching then fatigue at the end of the end of the season where people have worked very very long hours, mm. and another thing, uh, when the a lot of the silage pits are full, then they'll start making bag silage, and the stacking of these bales uh, is critical that is done right when they're actually stacked because stacking them under uh, power lines or stacking them badly where they're unstable. You're just presenting a risk then for, for the next year okay. where people have to go under these power lines or take bales from a, a very unstable stack. So there's quite a lot to be yeah. thought about, but yeah, we have a, lots of resources there. Yeah, and quite, 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 a lot, quite a lot of reasons uh, for considering uh, the safety of it all, because as you say, 34 people have lost their lives on farm vehicles over the last uh, five years. That's nearly years, seven yeah. people a year. It's an incredible yeah. amount. Yeah. Pat, I have to leave it there, though. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Pat Griffin, Senior Inspector with uh, the Health and Safety Authority. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire researched. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.